0: You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMForum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and we have a show for you. New voices, hidden gems. It's all right here as we dive into the ICM Forum's 7th Annual Film Festival, ICM FFF 2023. Which is set up to highlight underwatched films from the last three years? If you're listening to this episode on release, the festival kicked off on November 13th and will run until December 11th, leaving ample time for viewings and forum discussions. Join us. Uh, go to ICMforum.com and be part of those discussions) um, If you're listening to this episode after December 11, 2023, don't worry, there will be a link to the complete lineup in the description of this episode, and the discussion threads will still be live on the forum. And of course, there will also be ICM FSS 2024, 2025, and so on. Anyways, I'm really excited for this episode as we'll dive into each of these 10 Underwatch gems in our main slate, and also do highlights uh, for our 10 other slates, and each with a selection of four films, so we will not have time to cover all of them in detail, but we'll uh, chat them up after, uh, shall we say, the main course. So... As I mentioned, we have new voices joining uh, the fun. This is an all-programmer episode. I'm a programmer, my regular co-host Tom is a programmer, and we managed to talk two of our colleagues into joining Talking Images for the very first time. Matthew and our brand new president of the programming committee, Wayne. So, just... Very briefly, before we start talking up the films themselves, uh, how are you guys doing today? Is it your first time on a podcast? Um, uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves. And uh, since uh, you are uh, gracing us with your uh, presence, uh, Wayne, since uh, you are our respectable president of the programming committee, why don't you go first and uh, try to sound presidential?
1: Uh, yeah, that's not going to happen, but I'll do my best. But yeah, so I'm, my name is Wayne. I'm Australian. This year I've taken over from Beavis as the president for the festival. I think we've done a good job and we've got a really good lineup this year for those that are interested in watching them.
2: I should probably introduce myself as, as well. So in my sort of like day job, I'm, I'm an economic writer and I, I do podcasts as part of that work, uh, just, just basically for the company that I work for. And it's quite fun as well. I do actually think we have an amazing slate of films for everyone to, to watch this year. The eight out of 10 of the main slate that I've seen, they are all really uh, superb films. And I'm particularly excited about some of the stuff in the under slates as well.
0: Brilliant, and I do think you managed to come off as uh, quite presidential, Wayne. So <laughs> mission accomplished uh, there, and uh, it's uh, it's good that you are uh, you're aware of what to expect, Matthew. Oh, and uh, Tom, uh, do you want to see say hi as well? Uh, just so any new listeners are not suddenly taken aback by the appearance of another Richard Jackson. Of course,
3: yes. Thanks for having me on, Chris, and it's uh, great to have uh Two new people on the podcast with us. I just thought it's worthwhile giving a brief summary of the festival and how it works for people who are perhaps new to the idea as well. So over the past year, between ourselves and four other fellow programmers, we've come up with a list of 183 films that we all thought were worthy of being in the festival and we've watched each other's nominations to kind of whittle them down to the best ones we can find. And we have come up with a brilliant main slate as everyone else has mentioned. So I'm looking forward to discussing them in, in more detail.
0: Here's Tom. And, uh, with that, we're off to the races. And uh, why don't we start with our centerpiece as every single year the programming committee selects one film. That we want our audience to pay specific attention to. This is the film the most programmers support, uh, love, and often also a film we think may spark some conversation. Though uh, hopefully it will not be as contentious and controversial as the last year's Caught in the Net. Anyways, uh, this year's centerpiece is the Belgian film Playground. It's the debut feature of Laura Vendel. And something I, for one, am always drawn to. Films that visually place us at the vantage point of children. As here, the playground really starts to feel as a whole world fitting for the French title, "Un Monde. Uh, As bullying and its consequences take the centerfold and splits relationships emotional at times heartbreaking but at least for me always engaging not to mention cinematically interesting in his commitment to the child perspective and what was your guys thoughts on playground
2: i think it just hit me at a very visceral level i'm in my 40s so i don't remember much about school but it kind of all came flooding back when i watched the the movie and you know i remember talking to a colleague recently and she was complaining about children and you know how grumpy they were you know we we're at lunch and I said well l- let's say that I'm about to tell you that we've just had lunch you have to go and do a religious studies lesson um, and after that you have to go and do PE now wouldn't you be grumpy too so I think it, it is that it's it to me it's an essential film because it gets us sort of empathizing w- with children again it just It's that time of life that is literally everything is new. And literally, it feels like, you know, if you've been unlucky in your school experience, although I think a lot of people probably have, that you kind of essentially can get dunked dumped into a shark tank and you know if you don't behave like a shark yourself you can get in trouble so it's like a very joyous film at points but it but it's also like almost like a prison film in some sense so you know we've got another uh prison film coming up but i think something that's remarkable about the film is just the films are shot at the level of the child and the how long the takes are it's just a very accomplished film in terms of craft
3: I really like your description there, Matt, of it being like dunked into a shark tank. (laughs) That's a great description and I can relate to that. And I think one thing that makes it really strong is that the dynamics of a playground have never felt more horrifying or visceral looking back on them as as an adult. I mean, the way the camera moves around, as you both mentioned, it captures the perspective of a child in a way that transports you back to those early memories of being at school. And it's got a a simple yet effective storyline that hooks you in from early on thanks to the impressive performances of the young actors who showcase a a breadth of emotions as they tangle with the challenge of being the the new kids at a strange and unwelcoming school. And I am really happy that this is uh, our centerpiece as I think it's going to prompt a lot of discussion and hopefully be a, a great viewing experience for everyone who gives it a shot.
1: So yeah, like I wasn't one of the original programmers that had seen this to put it onto the um, centerpiece, but I agreed that that everyone that had watched it had loved it. I've now watched it only a couple of days ago as the first one, first movie I've watched for the festival since the lineup's been made. As the you pro, rest of you programmers know, I'm the one that promotes a lot of children orientated movies, a lot of coming of age movies. So this one was right up my alley but the thing i got here not necessarily about the kids and that which was great but for me and this is weird coming because i'm not i don't normally talk about the cinematography but that was the highlight of this movie the way that the camera was always focused on our main character it was always in her face it was her reactions we might see little glimpses of what's going on around her but it was about this great little actress in the end um what she was able to convey and it just how much it drew you into the movie um so while the topic was great and it really got me just remembering i've got six kids a couple of them in primary school things like that and they are bullied kids so that hit me but it was just the way that the camera stuck on that girl and what she could portray and the confusion because her first year of school and the confusion that she got, what her older brother was going through, what she was causing, everything like that. The movie is the perfect centrepiece and easily my second favourite movie in the main Late. and I'll talk about my favourite one later on.
2: So the, the actress is Maya, Maya Vanderbeck, and I think she's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, as Wayne entered there, like the range of emotion she's able to get out of her face, a very special from the point of view of the acting.
0: I'm just uh, so happy that it made such an impact on you, uh, Wayne, and that that's a really <laughs> a good sign for uh, how hopefully uh, the audience of the festival will react as well. And I agree with so much of what all of you have been saying so far. I mean, I think few films really manage to immerse you in the world of children the way Playground does. And I, I completely agree. Just placing the camera directly on this young girl and actually just starting on her first day of school as she's crying and hugging her father afraid to go in. With the characters constantly on her all the time, creating an equally disorienting and immersive outlook. Just that she's just standing there in the playground, she wants her big brother to protect her. She's just really scared and worried about what's going on around her. And and then the world kind of starts to change, because how overpowering this playground is, and how it really just feels so large. But also, like I think Matthew mentioned, almost a bit like a prison It's a very, very powerful experience, and it's quite unique in cinema. I can't really think of that many films that have managed to capture just that, there, there are obviously a lot of really great films that manage to take you into the worlds of children. Um, Summer 1993 is a recent one that's absolutely fantastic uh, as well. You, you had, uh, from the very same year, you had Petite Maman, but this one really does such a great job with it. And I think it's also worth mentioning that uh, the film really knows where to focus because it cuts all home life, everything we see, is just the playground and the school itself we can see the father at the gate but we don't actually see how uh, this young girl and her brother interact at home we we just kind of get glimpses of of that everything is just set right there in that world and uh, that really just heightens uh, both its strength and uh, just its accomplishment uh, as a film
2: i think you're, you're definitely right there chris The fact that you you're only in the school for the entire movie makes it completely immersive, and that is also what gives it that that feel. And you you know, my brother's uh, my brother's school teacher, and he says something that's increasingly happening amongst children is uh, school refusal, where essentially they were just refused to go to school they they refused to to participate in, in in school whatsoever. So I think it's a topic that's pretty hot right now.
1: Yeah, um, I agree with that refusal to go to school. My 11-year-old daughter, for example, she's school captain, but she's having so many days off just because of one girl with being bullied. So as I said, like, the the movie did hit me in that way because of that. Yeah, I'm absolutely in agreement it's such a big issue at the moment.
2: The one thing I'm worried about now is that we're all in so much agreement about about this movie that it's, it's not going gen- to generate as, as much discussion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well, that's uh, hope. I mean, uh, yeah, I think like last year we had... <laughs> We had a film that, you know, programmers loved and all of the (laughs) jury came like, why did you pick this film? And started just picking it apart, which was uh, uh, quite an unusual experience and was a lot of moral concerns as well. That was just that just blew up in terms of really wonderful discussion. And yeah, this this year it might be a lot of consensus that playground is great. Maybe there won't be. uh, But I think even now we managed to talk about a lot of important issues of bullying. Maybe people will take personal experiences and share them. Or maybe they'll just talk about the cinema itself and just how uh, well Wendell takes us into the world of children, which takes so much talent to do just that. And with our centerpiece uh, out of the way, we can then start diving into the nine other films in the main slate, because there's quite a few great films there as well, and see if we might get into some heated discussions along uh, the way there. And uh, we can go in alphabetical order, starting with Apples, uh-huh. the Greek weird wave film by Christos Nico, set in a world where a pandemic is erasing people's memories i mean this dark 2020 comedy could hardly have been released at a better time but still didn't quite get the exposure it might have deserved outside of uh, uh, cinephile circles so uh, what are your thoughts on
3: apples so apples was um, one of my nominations and i'm really happy to see it make the main slate because it's it's a wonderful film it's as you said it's a strange greek art house film that dabbles with sci-fi elements and it's about a a pandemic that causes sudden amnesia in the affected and it's a a beautiful and also somber piece of work that feels very current as you said chris with its depiction of an unexpected affliction that sends ripples throughout the lives of all it touches and i think it it captures the feeling of an imagined near future eerily well and explores its central notion with a wonderful sense of curiosity as we learn more about the strange new world it depicts. There's also a lot of black comedy throughout that works really well in explaining its unusual pandemic, and I was really taken with this one, and I'm glad that uh, other programmers have been taken with it too.
2: It's an example of a, like, weird wave film, right? So 2009 is a year that I'm known for looking back at a lot. And that was, that was the year of Dogtooth, essentially. That was the film that took the art house scene by storm. And I think this is a continuation uh, of that trend now that sort of Yorgos Lanthemus has moved into making films with Hollywood. It's a weird wave movie, but it has a lot more empathy than those um, movies that you usually tend to have. I did really like the movie, but I, ha- I have to say that I've I've often disagreed with with reviews on it, and I don't want to spoil things. But I think there is actually a, a twist in the movie, quite a big twist that most people seem to have missed when I've read about it. So I would watch out for that, and it actually it actually in a lot of ways affects how I view the movie because it becomes much more of a humorous movie when you see it in in that light, and obviously. I can't tell you exactly what I mean here without spoiling it, but I'm hopeful that it will become a a topic of discussion for that point. There there were scenes in the movie where I was absolutely thigh-slapping in laughter, but because of the the way that I was seeing it, that is maybe slightly different from the way that some people have seen it. But I think the the movie in itself, like even ignoring all that, sort of whatever your opinion on, on that is it, it's about re- rediscovering life, essentially. And I think that's quite a potent thematic for, you know, those of us who, who might be getting slightly bored or tired of life, essentially. Just what what, what would it be like just to, to, to rediscover it again?
1: I'll have to say, like, I reasonably enjoyed it when I watched it. I watched it last year when it was nominated. Um, but I'll have to agree with Chris. It was the timing of when it came out, the the idea of a pandemic. Of course, we were living one at the time, but it was a different type of pandemic and the way that the people reacted. So seeing what we were going through, but in a totally different way, in a different way of thinking, I I think if I watched it for the first time now or in a couple of years, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much, but that's because I'm not necessarily that style of movie. As Chris said, it just came out at the perfect time, but because of the time it came out, it just didn't get the reception that it could have got at, the, at a totally different time.
0: Yeah, that's very true. I mean, imagine if this film had been released in 2019 or, you know, January, February 2020, and you know, people have been going to see it, and then suddenly the pandemic kicked and people would be thinking back to it. Or if it had been released on Netflix, for instance, it would have been a very different reception. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think it will be very interesting to hear more about uh, Matthew's interpretation in uh, the forum, rather when the discussion about Apple opens up there with all the possible spoilers, hidden behind spoiler tags, of course. But but, but, yeah, I I completely agree. Like, while uh, the biggest Greek weird wave uh, director is obviously uh, left for, uh, you know, these large English language productions and has more focus than ever before, there are all of these other greek worldwide directors that have continued working or even just coming up now for the first time and in many ways apples feels very similar to the movement as a whole i mean it has that kind of at least to me standard cold calculated sparse darkly humorous atmosphere where people have these semi-deadpan expressions and here you know while we're talking about memory loss you kind of had this like white uh, slate white clean relatively confused people and uh, this very weird sense of humor as well and i think that tends to work very very well it's the fun viewing it definitely works exceptionally well given just the time and it came out and uh, what we were all going through but yeah no, this is this is a great additional uh, film for this wave that deserves a bit more attention than it's got because generally people just speak about uh, lantimos i mean we had another uh, great uh, film for the week weird wave in i think uh, icmfff 2021 which was our fifth edition which was called pity uh that was not as shall we say empathetic as this one it was, it was far far colder and brutal but uh, there's still a lot of really interesting film coming out of this wave uh, and uh, greece uh, that are worth seeking out
2: I think it's worth just saying something quickly about the the pandemic here, because one of my brother's friends who is is actually a, a movie director, when the pandemic hit, he did get uh, COVID-19, and his mother had sadly passed away a couple of years before the pandemic. It, th- this obviously wouldn't have happened for many people who who got COVID, but he did actually get memory loss and couldn't remember what his mother looked like, so it was a pretty tragic episode.
0: Wow, that's uh, absolutely awful. I didn't know that, that that was a side effect, but that that's, that should bring this film even closer to home. Such
3: a tragic time for everyone. And, you know, everyone's got these kind of personal stories that um, has affected them in in one way or the other. So, you know, this is a film that, that can hit hard in, in certain aspects. But then it's also very interesting that um, there's different interpretations available, you know, Matthew found this to be a real like laugh out loud comedy and I had the complete opposite. It was, it did amuse me, but I did also find it to be quite a a bleak film. You know, I had a different interpretation, but the fact that it was successful from both, both perspectives mean that it is a film that's got a lot to offer. And it is one that I'm quite excited to revisit after hearing Matthew's interpretation. So hopeful that this one should provoke a lot of uh,
0: discussion once the festival kicks off. And the uh, next film, alphabetically, might also kick up some discussion. It's uh, Ballad of a White Cow by Miriam uh, Mogdam and Batash Sania, also from 2020, which follows the story of the widow of a wrongfully convicted and executed man who unknowingly befriends the judge who sentenced her beloved to death. It touches on some or a, quite a few of the themes you've seen from Iranian cinema through the last decades in terms of misogyny. And it also ties in with uh, one of our best recent ICMF uh, films, which was There is No Evil, which also touched on the death penalty. So it, it was a lot of interesting throwbacks uh, for me and certainly a film that's just stacked up with so many themes for our jury and for the audiences to just dive into.
2: I did actually watch this one last night, so it's very fresh in the mind. It, like you say, there is some interesting material for debates on death penalty and actually some different perspectives that I hadn't seen before. So, so for example, uh, the death penalty in the movie is referred to as a, as a human right, in um, quotation marks essentially that as the sort of victim or the family of the victim that it, it's a human right for, for you to be able to see the offender punished. I think it, it's unlikely that many of us will sympathize with that view, but it, it's an interesting uh, view that i've I've never seen before. Uh, it's just worth mentioning briefly what ballad of the white cow means there's um, there's a surah in the Quran it's called Bakara, if I've got that right. That Muhammad actually were referred to as the peak of the Quran. You know that it was the it was the best bits essentially. And what what happens in that surah is that a man is murdered and people want to find out who did it. They go to Moses and Moses says, "I've had chat with God, and you have to go and find an unblemished cow. You know the the skin of the cow will be unblemished, and the cow must never have been put to work and and if you sacrifice that cow to Allah, you will, you will find out who, who did the murder. And it, it, essentially the, the point here is that it's pretty unfair on the, on the cow, right? And the, the overall metaphor is, is that the, the man who's executed in the, in the film is the white cow. It's something that's probably quite obvious for, for an audience from the region, but it's worth giving people a bit of background on. Uh, I did think the movie, was very strong one of the things that i worry about is that there there is there is an entire genre of of movies which are depressed iranian women you you know H- holy spider being uh, another one and uh, they can blend into one another and i'm i'm, I'm not trying to tr- to trivialize what what happens in, in in that region i guess it's another one that we could call it a, a jail movie and it's essentially that sometimes society can can be like a prison and throughout the movie the widow is constantly having people try to control her men essentially trying to control her i think it's a movie that's also like shot very beautifully and it doesn't insist on itself it's quite quiet in the way it does that i think there are two shots that stood out for me when when she uh, meets her husband in in his jail cell it's just a very bleak environment and and again, there are two instances in the movie where she puts on a lipstick, which very similar images that, that mean very different things each time that they happen. Sorry, I'll stop gassing on if I didn't know, but I did think it was a pretty, pretty strong movie.
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this was actually one of my nominations that made it in this year. I did steal it from, I believe it was Tom's from last year. So, my memory is a bit shady on the movie. Even though I nominated it, I did watch it last year. I just know I loved it. But I wanted to go back with on what Matt was just saying. We were having that discussion on those Iranian movies. The genre it does blend together a bit, and he made me realise that that is the case. This is one of the more powerful versions of those films I've seen.
3: So Ballad of a White Cow, it's a, a poignant examination of the patriarchal society in iran and it casts a bleak shadow over the viewer with its haunting depiction of a widow who longs for justice but finds that her voice is silenced or falls on deaf ears all too often one thing that i really liked about this film is that as viewers were made aware of vital information long before the protagonist and this makes um, the main character mina's plight even tougher to digest as We are forewarned of that, which can only have devastating implications for all involved. As Matt mentioned, you know, Mina's story is is used as a tool to highlight the failings of the judiciary system in Iran. And it does so with almost a universality that speaks volumes to, to anyone really with a conscience. I imagine that we'll see great things from Mary Mogadam in the future. And I hope that she continues to own a craft behind the camera without also compromising her incredible talent as an actress, because Ballad of a White Cow proves her to be an invaluable asset in either capacity. And I think if you are familiar with other Iranian films that tackle this subject, um, like Holy Spider, as Matt mentioned, I think you'll find a lot to unpack in this one. And I can understand why some may you know, blend in, because there are a lot that, that deal with this, this issue. But, I mean, that's just a reflection on how important this kind of issue is, and um, I hope that people get a lot out of this film.
1: So Tom sort of just summed up what I was trying to say. about um, Moving on to the other part about the director, about Mariam, I, would, I do want to point out uh, something that we've done as programmers over the last few years, and I've been probably the spearhead of that, is... More representation of female point of views, female directors. So far we've talked about three films, two of them have female directors. It's something that us as the programming team are trying to help correct. So I think originally, when I bet this is my third year as a programmer, that the first year we had less than 20 percent of our nominations or about 20 percent of our nominations were female directed. Last year we got it up to 25. This year, if I'm correct, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think we're up to about 29% of our movies were female directed. And it's showing why these strong entries in our main slate of the effort that we have put in as a team.
0: And it's worth noting too that the main slate is actually 50-50 uh, male and female. Uh, so. 50% are directed by men, 50% are directed by women. Though, though, of course, uh, Belle of a White Cow is uh, co-directed uh, by uh, a man, Petash uh, Sneha, as well. So I guess you could say f- 45% uh, me- uh, women, 55% men. And uh, m- moving on to the next film, which also looks at uh, misogyny and women's place in society, but in a much more uh, luxurious and, uh, shall we say, royal setting. Um, I- I'm talking, of course, of Marie Krautzer's corsage, starring the excellent Vicky Krieps as Sissy, the still famous and adored empress of Austria-Hungary, but at an older age than what most films places her in at the terrible age of um, <laughs> uh, shaking my notes there. Forty, which is apparently the average age at the point of this film, as the doctor points out to her. Uh, the film plays rather fast and loose with history, uh, and, del- and instead creates a vibrant and rebellious picture of a woman attempting to break free from the role or roles she is forced into as empress. Uh, And as a woman, and uh, it it, it feels very vibrant and quite unique, though, obviously, we can perhaps compare it to uh, Sophia Coppola, Marie Antoinette, etc., as well, within cinema. What were your reactions to uh, Corsage?
2: I'm scared that I'm going, <laughs> going first again, but I, I will I will do it again because Corsage was a film that I nominated in in my programmer role. So I think what you're saying is right. It, it plays uh, very fast and loose w- with history. It's a bit like Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette in 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 that respect. It's it's not really about taking you back in time and showing you exactly what happened. It's very much a feminist film to, to a large extent. Like you say, it's about the experience of being a middle-aged woman and how you can essentially become invisible to, to men at that point. I think it is a punk movie. You know, there's a lot of punk attitude from the Empress Elizabeth. So I think it's worth mentioning very briefly that there has been some controversy surrounding the the film. the The main actor in the movie is essentially admitted to a very serious crime since the film was made. What I would point out is that, as far as we understand, that doesn't actually have anything to do with the with the production of the movie. I think in, in Austria, people are now less likely to see the movie because it, it's kind of like watching a movie with, with Kevin Spacey would be in the, the English language world in that your mind would be on things that were happening off, off screen. That's obviously a much bigger news story in Austria. You know, I think sacrificing a feminist film on the back of, you know, would be the wrong thing to do. I think one of the things that I really did like about this movie. And it's quite a brave movie to make because so many actresses have played C.C. You know, Romy Schneider played her many times. One of the things that I really liked is that it isn't sort of black and white. You you, you don't leave a movie thinking, oh, C.C. is, you know, this amazing person. She's having to put up with a lot, but she's quite capable of uh, dealing out injustice herself. For, you know, for example, there's a scene where, one of her ladies in waiting, who is also r- reaching a point where becoming invisible to men, asks for permission to to go and get married to her sweetheart, and and Cece says no. So uh, I think it's a, a strong, sort of pungent film. Like you say, it's it's revisionist. It's not it's not really a film about Austria at that time. I, I think it's going to be pretty pretty interesting for people to see, and I hope it generates a lot of discussion.
1: I, I don't have too much to add to this, but the main thing I loved about this film, it's to do with a lot of period ones. It's the effort to put in the period into perspective. I, I felt like I was in the period that I was supposed to be in. The whole production design, the costumes, everything like that, it it just felt right. That's what I loved most about the film. the The content itself I struggled with a little bit. But the mood is what really got me with the movie. In terms of what Matt was just talking about, the controversy, I've learned about the controversy since then. To me, that doesn't stop me from watching the film. It's putting the art away from the artist sort of idea. And um, as Matt said, this movie has nothing to do with the actual controversy that has been come up now.
0: And he's not meant to be a particularly overly sympathetic character either, so that that might have an impact.
2: He's 100% not a sympathetic character as well, so if you <laughs> want to use that when you watch it, uh, by, by all means, go, go ahead. Yeah,
0: exactly. That's... <laughs> it might help, it help the viewing, if anything. Like, oh, this guy's even worse than I thought. But yeah, I, I love the way you describe it as a punk film, uh, Matthew. I think that's really right. I, I think uh, it, it balances the idea of being period appropriate while being also very, very modern. So I, I think you're both very right in, in that respect. And, and it's, it's just, it, it's vibrant, it's playful, but, but simultaneously has this undercurrent of melancholia and, and even just this dire atmosphere. And it manages to balance Vicky Creeps kind of her her personal force and fire with the circumstances she's finding herself in i mean i think some people might struggle a little bit with sympathy just because we're talking about you know one of the most uh rich and powerful and iconic uh, women in history but at the same time it's still a role she's forced into and I, i think it's meant to reflect on more than just her as well in terms of just what the film plays with so yeah it's it's a wild ride it it's Different from what I expected from it, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just one of those films that it's very easy to recommend. And moving on to our next film, that's also film I personally find really easy to recommend, and it's the only fully animated film on the main slate. The 70-minute anime film, "The Girl from the Other Side" by Yaturo Kubo from 2022, just a must see it's a a dark more stripped back animation but it's still just this fantastical story this fairy tale of an unlikely connection between this you could call him a monster i suppose in in a way uh, and uh, a young girl this kind of my adventures, if you will, they go through this kind of really dark and dangerous world Inhabit his attempts to protect her. I think that this kind of sensibilities can really appeal to Ghibli fans, or Gibbery, as we found out it's actually meant to be pronounced, or Ghiburi. <laughs> While also never feeling derivative the way that so many recent anime films Feel uh, it's just it's it's a very special film uh, at, at least to me. Uh, but what are your opinions on uh, the girl from the other side? So this was a
3: dark fairy tale, which is really pretty and enchanting animation. And to be truthful, I wasn't entirely won over by the storyline, which kind of felt a little flimsy in places and not overly clear. But I was more than happy to be lost in the impressive visuals, so it didn't detract too much that I wasn't taken in with the story. It's a film that focuses far more on atmosphere and mood than, you know, the story. And I suppose if that sounds like something which would resonate with you, it's one that you should definitely seek out.
2: Right. I actually visited the, the Miyazaki Museum, which is just outside Tokyo, and the, the tour guide told us to pronounce it ghibli <laughs> i think it's like a bit like the nutella and nutella debate you know there's a certain interest in the debate not actually being solved because you know you then end up talking about the the product more, more and more uh, but I, i'll just go into the the film the the girl from the other side the the inevitable comparison is with with angel's egg you know this fantastic uh classic of animation i think girl from the other side does draw on that you know both movies features uh, young girls with with white hair who are sort of escorted by mysterious sort of older male characters and i think it is very hard to describe what the movie is about both movies they are tone pieces it, you can definitely emote and what i'm very keen on talking to people about you know who aren't into movies or have never ventured into art house movies is that it's as important to feel about a movie as it is to to think about a movie and one of the feelings that I came away um it, it's a movie about what life could be after life has is ex- is essentially gone away you know the, the character appears to have once been human, but he's he's essentially lost a lot of what it means to to be human. How he managed to carry on living after that. There's a time movie called Mundane History, which is about a, a guy who's had an accident and so he's paralysed, and it's about this process about trying to understand what what life would be like after that. You, you know that you can't have the things that you had before, but what can you salvage? So I think it's a movie that made me feel a lot. I think something that I really liked about, again, like Angel's Egg and this movie was the landscape animation. So I don't know how niche this is, but I actually love watching animators animate landscapes, showing how a sea of grass flows within the concept of animation. It's like they're trying to show their virtuosity off the most when, when they're doing this. And actually one of my favorite scenes in angel's egg is is just showing a puddle of water and, and what's going on in the puddle of the water so it, it is one of those that that i really enjoy from that perspective i was definitely very very pleased
0: yeah i agree with pretty much everything uh you're saying there matthew and yeah i was going to compare it to angel's egg as well it's a very similar kind of animation very simultaneously very simple and kind of stripped bare but still has a lot of detail and above all this kind of strong emotion if you will Uh, this this very special atmosphere i completely agree with you when you say that the story is uh, it it comes second i mean this was adopted by i believe a multi-volume manga and it does kind of have this feeling of being compressed but it, it still has so much mystery in it that with these kind of more dreamlike uh, I- images it-, it does kind of come together but yes it's definitely more of a visceral and visual experience than you know a great narrative Um, I-, I do think don't think it's that difficult to explain the story and it can even be seen as playing into the pandemic in some ways because essentially it's a story between uh, an outer realm and an inner realm the inner realm is more or less our world, just, you know, a long time ago. And the outer realm are these people who are cursed and can in- infect others, <laughs> essentially. And uh, is this, is the fear of the beings of the inner world of just these outer beings coming in and taking over, uh, just a lot of violence associated with that as well. So that, so that, that fit into the pandemic narrative to a certain extent. And when you add a dream like uh, narratives and when you just. Have this fantastical animation and world. I just think it, it tied together very, very well, and it was a, a special film. Even though, like if, if it, it, like you say, it, it can very easily be seen as closely connected to
2: Angel's Egg. I mean I, th- I think that's actually something that to me w- was good i w- i wasn 't watching the movie and thinking you know this is a complete copy of uh, of another movie. I was watching it and thinking this is someone that I- that has made this movie that absolutely loved a- angel's egg and you know what wanted to use some of the motifs and you know s- some some of the best movies uh, ever made do do that you know when when you watch alien you 're essentially watching a compendium of all the horror tropes that of- have that have ever existed completely sort of stolen from various movies but even if you can see that it doesn't really detract from your, your viewing experience so it's, I, would, I would say it's not just a weak reflection of, of Angel's Egg, it's something that is unique in its own right and as strong in its own right.
0: Yeah, definitely and when it comes to trying to be inspired I would much rather see, you know, uh, films inspired by Angel's Egg than all of these uh, directors attempting to be as yes, hockey. You know, we've seen all of these kind of light fantasy films that kind of tried to build on similar things over the last few years coming out of the anime industry in japan and very few of them really stand out so i'm really happy to get something that leans on the other side and if we get like five ten more of these kind of films over the next decade i would certainly not <laughs> be complaining uh we talked a lot about films that place us into the sense of being in a prison in this episode so far and it makes sense that the next film is the only film that's actually placed in a prison and still ties in with many of those themes we've been talking about in terms of oppressive laws and values. Our next film is the German prison drama Great Freedom from 2021 by Sebastian Meiser and starring the always excellent uh, Franz Rogowski. As a young to middle-aged gay man who for decades and decades keeps being sentenced to prison under paragraph 175, which criminalized uh, homosexuality in Germany. It's just such a large but simultaneously stripped bare film uh, with wonderful performances great atmosphere uh, and just generally it's a very striking viewing uh, at least to me Uh, what was uh, your responses to great freedom
2: to me when i watched that i thought this this is up there as one of the greatest performances that i've ever seen and Franz Rogovsky, he's so restrained as well you know it's this absolutely beautiful performance but actually sort of looked at uh, what was happening on on the awards circuit and actually girl friedrich who plays his uh cellmate um victor they both seem to have taken away an equal number of acting gongs if if i've if i've managed to add it up correctly unfortunately it all seems to be at minor film festivals but i think the rogovsky performance is so strong that And he is obviously the central character that you can miss just how well Friedrich is doing as well. It's one of these movies that seems to, I I was astonished that it wasn't more famous. It got into the uncertain regard section as can, which, you know, people talk about as being reserved for maybe some more more experimental movie. But actually, I, I would just say it's the second track. The list of films that they think weren't quite good enough, they tend to put in uncertain regard and it seems a great pity that 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 happened and it seems surprising that so many people haven't seen it that we could actually nominate it for this festival because we're trying to show lesser known films and actually if i was to point to one film in this festival that i actually thought had you know great greatness credentials you know i think there there are several movies in here that are, are on my favorites list but i do actually think great freedom it is a great movie, as we've already said. The acting is amazing, and the story is heartbreaking. You know this this idea that after the Second World War and after all the persecution that's happened there, the war never ended for him. It just carried on forever. And just how acceptant he is, you, you know, the good grace that he manages to take that in is pretty astonishing. It's a film that's almost unbearably sad the whole way through. There's very little enjoyment, very little rays of hope. You know, it's definitely not the Shawshank Redemption and all the better for it if I'm allowed that little dig. But I did actually felt that there was just some like universality to it that, um, you know, for a lot of reasons, uh, life says no to to a variety of people for, for reasons that are well explored, you know, sexuality, race, but probably still we shouldn't Acknowledged for a variety of other things that we haven't really identified. And Hans is someone that life has said no to, you know. And he seems to be this this wonderful individual. It seems to be really sad that that happened. I just mentioned as well how good I thought the the movie looked. It did actually remind me of one of my favourite paintings, which is hanging Cardiff National Gallery. It's a Burn Jones painting. I think it's called Strife, if I remember it. It's a painting that I spent like half an hour looking at because it is so horrid. You know, it's this stark picture, and a lot of it has to do with the color palette. It's all washed out. It's grays and burnt ochre, and that's essentially how this movie looked as well. I just think color's right. The acting's right. The story's amazing. It's got a social purpose. I do think this is actually a great movie and i am pretty astonished that the, the critical community didn't work that out definitely didn't get bad reviews but um far suppose it didn't get rave reviews
3: now i don't want to take the shine off chris and matt's praise too much because this was as they both said a well-acted and nicely shot prison drama though i have to admit i did find it quite dull and lifeless in parts I mean, in that sense, it, it captures the boredom of of prison life well, though I'm not sure that always makes for a riveting film. But it certainly allows plenty of time for contemplation on the story and the uh, social matters that it, it brings to the forefront. But I would say it's it's probably closer to something than, say... Kiss of the Spider-Woman, then A Prophet or Startup, which are usually the prison films that work well for me, those that are more brutal, violent and intense. So perhaps that's an indication of whether it's a film that would work well for your sensibilities based on the kind of prison films I enjoy. And as it is, it's a film that I suppose I appreciated more than enjoyed that you know the crafts there it looks great but it didn't really resonate with me on a a personal level and i wasn't really invested in the the characters or the story but i can see why others regard it so highly so definitely an an interesting one to take a look at if you're intrigued by more slower brooding kind of prison
0: films yeah i can see why i came to that opinion tom because yeah it it is uh a relatively quiet, very slow-burning and restrained look at uh, life in captivity. One of the things I really enjoyed the most about it, or which captivity was most about it, is actually how it strips away everything but the prison walls. And there's just so much sorrow and melancholy throughout. But, like you mentioned, that also leaves a lot of room for this kind of slow contemplation of what's going on around them, and that might not be everybody's uh, cup of tea but but i think there's just so many powerful images and this powerful underlying sense of claustrophobia and misery like you have this lead character who's essentially it's worth noting he's taken there in a the, in the, I think i'm not sure if it's very first scene but he's taken directly from a concentration camp where he was locked up for being gay. And he's just, as soon as everything's liberated, he's moved into a regular prison because it's still illegal in Germany to be uh, homosexual. And it's just, there there are a few scenes shot, like you have a courtroom scene, for instance. There are these few scenes shot outside of the deal, but the only real sense of time changing as we're flipping through the narrative is that, you know, his hair gets a little bit grayer. His face changes a little bit. But it's just, like, he's in there for decades with some periods outside, but essentially just always sent back. And it's just, actually, that was a slight negative for me because it was a little bit disorienting just when we were at some points. But it it also just hits so well that he's just in this never-ending cycle. Uh, And he just becomes a prison rat, essentially. He doesn't understand how to live outside. He just keeps being sent back and back. And back. I would also like to just disagree with Matthew that George Friedrich, uh, he is fantastic as the as Victor, a, a criminal who's struggling with uh, uh, drug addiction and a lot of inner battles. I think is an equal to Rodowski, and uh, I, I think that's also why I. Well, the only reason why I really highlight uh, uh, Franz Rodowski in the in my intro uh, for the film is just because he is just. Such a well-established, well-known, fantastic actor at this point. I think George Friedrich is a surprise here that he actually rivals him, and in some cases even outstages him. And it, it just—it's really worth seeing for these two performances. And there's other powerful performances in it as well. I also thought the film was really interesting uh, in that it revived its kind of semi. Now probably old fashioned uh, plot device of just this unlikely friendship blossoming between a bigot and a uh, persecuted minority, <laughs> if you will, where you have George Friedrich who's a bit homophobic he he's, he's very hard and criminal uh but you know they still start to get along and this really close relationship forms between them and where as they kind of come to these mutual understandings uh, and that that's just is also just wonderful. To see, so I think the film has a lot going on. I think it's very powerful. It, it shows this depressive system of the jail, but yeah, no, it, it, I can see why it could be a little bit too slow for some viewers, for sure.
2: I think, Chris, what you said about me- melancholy w- was interesting, and maybe why some people uh, will it, will enjoy the movie less. I, I remember actually watching uh, Lars Von Trier's uh, Melancholia in the cinema and sitting there absolutely transfixed because I think in my sort of teenage years and 20 years, I did suffer from that type of depression called called melancholy, which is quite ruminative. It's it's different from a lot of other types of depression. I remember speaking to someone else who'd also like suffered from a, a melancholy type uh, depression and they had also been transfixed by that film and i i sort of wonder if that is a is another thing about th- this movie that anyone who's suffered from a feeling of m- melancholy or pat- particularly that their life isn't isn't going anywhere because because obviously uh, hans's life isn't isn't going anywhere i think m- maybe maybe people in that bracket might might be able to Uh, form some more connection with the movie i do think it is worth underlining franz rakowski's performance because i very rarely make lists of actor performances it's not something that i focus a a lot of my thought on but i did think that this was one of the great performances and i will i will be coming back and watching this movie again because of it yeah
0: that's that's a powerful sentiment and that that's quite possibly very true, Uh, but it might also then be a bit (laughs) due to change from these more dreary and darker uh, melancholic films to what I would describe as the only all-out comedy without any clarifying adjectives on the main slate. I I know we can say that Apple is a dark comedy as well, we have a film coming up a little bit later that is arguably a black comedy too, but in terms of just all-out crazy There's no pure comedy on this slate than uh, Ingvild Sve Ninja Baby from 2021. This is uh, just insane Norwegian comedy about a fetus that is so so sneaky that the mother-to-be only realizes she's pregnant when it's too late to get an abortion and, and strangely we, we realized just talking about this episode i'm actually the only one of the programmers who pushed this film uh, that are here today the colleague's who have seen the film did not end up participating in this episode, so I'll have to (laughs) present uh, this film alone. (laughs) But it's a very unusual take of the unwanted pregnancy trope, because essentially the mother, she does not want this baby. She's forced to uh, carry the baby, to term after repeatedly screaming at the people at the abortion clinic. It fits into a lot of the tropes we're seeing coming out of Norway these days, with this kind of wavered 20-something woman who's kind of like in a state of not quite sure what she wants to do uh, with her career, uh, but she has some artistic leanings. And the film really takes off as she starts, as she's an animator, as she's uh, or a cartoonist, and she starts drawing these images of... Her fetus in the form of a small ninja and she starts imagining this cartoon character just whispering in her ear and having these conversations <laughs> with her fetus uh, as it keeps growing. And much of the comedy and the heart comes from these exchanges, but it's not just some overly cute film about accepting motherhood. Far from it. It fits very well into the quirky comedy category. It also has some darker touches. But it's also just all out crazy, just a full on ridiculous trip and it doesn't take all of the choices you would expect a film like this. To take so it I I felt it was a very refreshing viewing. It's filled with hilarious situation. The it's filled with some rather out there uh, comedy, and it, it just becomes increasingly extreme and blends this animation and real life together really well. So definitely a film I would recommend. I'm very really happy we managed to fit in an all out comedy into the main slate. Uh, because that's not always that easy. And yeah, let's see how our audiences and how the jurors react to this film. But I I know from some of the jurors already that who have seen it, that this is actually uh, stacking up quite well. So let's see how that goes. And since I was the only one who's seen it, uh, we can immediately move on to what could actually be uh, the most controversial film in the entire main slate as it stirred up a lot of conversations in its native Australia where it actually took home the top award I believe for best Australian film but it hasn't really struck us uh, anywhere else. I- I'm talking about Justin Cursell's *Nitram*, which tracks the life of a real life mass murderer here with a reverse name and is trying to kind of not give the real person uh, attention Uh, from childhood to the event itself, never actually showing the event, stopping ahead of it. And what uh, made it special to a lot of us as we discussed it is his focus on mental issues and actual laws. The ability in Australia to get weapons really, really easily So there's a lot to dive into here, whether the film is actually responsible, uh, if its message comes out well, and just, I don't know, it's a a strong piece of cinema in general. Uh, What say you?
1: As an Australian, I need to first go back to what this movie means to me. So the Port Arthur Massacre is our biggest mass shooting in modern history. To put it in terms of others, my two UK people on this podcast with me would remember the Dunblane massacre. The murderer in our case, Martin Bryant, the Dunblane massacre was used as a a reasoning on why he did it. So I was 13 at the time when this happened, and I can remember hearing it on the school bus radio on the way home from my high school. And it was something that Doesn't happen here. Of course, it hasn't happened since because of this. We now most guns are illegal in Australia. But for the film itself, we've all we've all seen movies about killers, the uh, true stories and that. And they glorify exactly the murders. They we see the murders. This movie is so different in the fact that it is all about why. How everyone perceives why he did it. the The murders themselves are actually carried off off camera. We hear the gunfire in that, but it's as Chris said that it's all about his mental issues. It is exactly what led him to do it, and it, it's a good character study on a unique person in. Anyone's society. Yes, it's controversial in the fact that it is about a mass murderer and one of Australia's worst criminals in that sense. But instead of looking at what he did, it shows the the mental illness that he had.
2: I absolutely 100% agree with, with everything that you're saying. My great criticism of media coverage and films about mass shootings in general is that they. There's this sense that they're infectious, that if you tell these stories the wrong way, they can inspire somebody to, to go and do something similar. It's exactly what you're saying, that you don't focus on the guy's name. You don't focus on the actual incident. I'm actually reminded of a film about a mass shooting from director who's now very famous, but this film wasn't famous at the time. It's, uh, Polytechnique by, um, Denis Villeneuve, which I actually despised uh, just because it spent so much time on the actual in- incident and it just didn't have any sort of sense of trying to, to really understand why, why the killer had done what they did. And I think. This was a great scandal in in the media for for decades, essentially, that the media had been told, if you spend all your coverage showing the amount of upsets been caused, you, you know, you interview people that's crying, you show all the police headlights, you show footage of people storming into schools, that someone who's vulnerable and hostile will see that and think that's exactly what I need to do. And Nitram completely avoids all the pitfalls which made me enormously happy it's worth pointing out that if anyone gets confused about the title that nitram is is Martin spelled backwards and it's, it's also a very neat way of pointing out that he got bullied at school um you know that's his nickname you know not a very nice sounding nickname i don't know if anyone had you know knits in their head when they're at school you know it's just kind of this horrible nickname and he's someone who's clearly has a lot of learning difficulties i do think it's an an amazing movie i was expecting to loathe it when i went in because i thought all of these school shooter movies are are, ter- are terrible and, and get it completely wrong a fun elephant as well, I think is a really weak film that for for some reason has managed to fare very well with the critical community. But I'm excited that we program Netram because I think it's a it's a great movie to discuss and in in my view and clearly Wayne's as well, it it deals with this subject in in the exact right way.
0: Yeah, I think you're very right there, Matt. I mean I, I think I have some different views than you on some of these school movies. For instance, I I mean I haven't seen Elephant in a very long time, but I quite appreciated it when it came out. But uh, I think Nitram handles it in a far more oral and responsible way. I mean, I think a lot of the controversy in Australia about this film was that there were people who thought that any film about a killer immortalizes that killer. It prompts them up in some way. And I don't think that any killer who committed mass murder with the urge of being immortalized would be in any way pleased to see a film such as Nitram made about them but because it, the way they show Nitram is just as this mentally unstable vulnerable child to man who's a challenge to his parents and a danger to those around them and, and even in terms of sympathy and empathy I, I don't think the film ever even tries to get us to warm up to Nitram I mean I, I never did I, I, I think I, I think it keeps us rather in a state of consistently being worried about what he might do because the film it's very very clear that something could happen at any point and it's kind of underlying just how is this man not getting the help he needs how is this man able to access guns those are the kind of issues that the film is very very clear and careful in portraying. I mean, another shooter film I thought was handled in a very interesting and moral way was "Ute uh, ja August," which, and, uh, which is on, um, focused on a tragedy quite close uh, to my heart because I'm Norwegian, and it was a very large amount of Norwegians killed in that shooting, and that that simply shows to not show the shooter at all and just focus on. The victims entirely and and their their horror uh but this one which which can also has moral implications that you know you shouldn't even show that some people would argue uh this one doesn't film doesn't show any of the actual killing like we established it simply just shows like you have here someone who you know is taken to psychiatrists. People are aware that there are severe issues at play. People are aware he can be dangerous, but nothing is done. And essentially the film just poses the question, why? It's not about glorifying him. It's not even about feeling empathy with him, though maybe pity is something we can feel to a point. It's done in a way that I feel is fairly responsible and which raises a lot of important issues without crossing any of those moral lines. A lot of these other films can be accused of. And I think that makes it a very powerful and unusual film.
1: I just wanted to point out, like... We're talking about how easy that it was for um, Martin, for Nitram, to get guns, and I pointed that in my little bit before, was this particular shooting was the whole reason that Australia has the gun laws that it has now. Our government reacted from this and made it so much harder to get guns that even our farmers, which is our lifeblood, had to hand in all their guns. They got paid. you know, they handed it in for money and the government paid out millions of dollars to buy back the guns. Um, and so while this movie is so well made, for me being the Australian, it is such a special thing that it took so many years for this to happen that a, a movie like this to come out and it means so much. The most of the controversy is in the state that happened in Tasmania. It's a little island just below us. It's one of our six states. Tasmania itself denies the movie completely. Like it was shown in only a couple of cinemas there. Yes, it won our national award for best movie and all that, but that whole state will not show the movie now.
3: I think it's fascinating to hear Wayne's perspective on this movie, and it's always interesting to know that. Films about crimes that are close to home, how, how they can hit so much harder. Um, so I don't really think I have much more to add because you guys have kind of summed up how impactful the film is. i would just add some more about the, the central performance from Caleb Landry-Jones. That's nothing short of impressive. He's, he's brilliant here. His brooding portrayal of this twisted individual makes for a riveting experience. I don't think I was as taken with the film as the rest of you. I did feel a little short changed by the ending, but the director, Justin Kerzel is clearly focused more on the build up, which we've obviously all discussed. That is not necessarily a bad thing. It's good to have a different take on these kind of crimes and it makes for a very fascinating
0: uh, character piece here. Yeah. And just before we move on to, I would just like to say, like, we talked so much about the controversy and how differently this film uh, captures this kind of, of event that uh, we didn't even talk about it that much as cinema. I mean, it's uh, in many ways it's kind of stripped back. There's a lot of handheld camera movements that really just puts us into a state of uncertainty and, and creates a lot of eerie atmosphere. And then, like you mentioned, like the central performance is great, but then you also have Judy Davis who, who delivers one of the best performances of 2021 and in recent memory as his mother I mean she's absolutely phenomenal and there's a lot of other strong performances in the film so uh, it's a powerful work in many ways but it's also just a really really accomplished uh, piece of uh, cinema uh, all uh, across the board so uh, hopefully our audience members will be drawn to that. Uh, our next film is possibly the most colorful and visually striking film on the main slate. Uh, it's uh, Daria Wojcik's The Press Realist Tale on Menopause, uh, called Merry-Go-Round, which combines art house and cult aesthetics into a crazy and bloody package as we follow Maria, a 50-year-old ultra-religious virgin whose changing hormones makes her want completely different uh, things in life shall we say <laughs> uh, this was a film we were talk- really struggling like if this had not gotten into the main slate we were really struggling of where to place it would have it been in the cold slate would it be art house Would we just have to fit it into europe it- it- it's a very complex film that gives so many different atmospheres it's, it's a borderline horror it's borderline dark comedy and uh, it- it's more like this, this kind of deadpan minimalism and then all the way it's just almost maximalist it's such uh odd but also exciting piece of cinema what were your guys's uh, take on uh merry ground merry ground is a very strange film and i'm glad that you
3: brought it to my attention chris it's amazing how unseen this film would appear to be as well judging from the lack of ratings on on most film sites and I suppose it's a quirky film as, as you said about a virgin dealing with the onset of menopause and it benefits from great composition and vivid set design throughout the colors are wonderful there are even a, a couple of scenes which are eerily reminiscent of the greasy strangler albeit toned down somewhat as the titular character begins the, to hallucinate due to the effects of prescription drugs that are applied incorrectly and they're some of the standout moments for me it's a beautiful and striking film with another charming central performance although it does feel rather slight due to its short runtime, i would have happily watched more so i mean i suppose that's always a good sign you don't want the film to end you're enjoying it but because of its short runtime, it does feel slight like it's just lacking that something but overall this was a wonderful and a weird experience and i'm very happy that that this has made the main slate so we can get some more people to um enjoy it and uh have a wild time
2: i'm actually probably going to be the the voice of dissent on this one like i was actually really looking forward to this film because the the, the way that it's reviewed sounds like exactly like film that that i'd like to watch and i think there, there is a problem in media and in society of, you know, particularly with not beautiful people or older people that people don't like to associate the idea they're sexual. They obviously are. You know, it's just this idea that, you know, if you're not very attractive or if, if you're older, you're just meant to somehow put your sexuality in a box. So it's actually just really refreshing to see a film where, you know, that t- taboo, if you can call it a taboo, is broken. I think it is a very sort of quirky movie. You know, there were some very dark, humorous moments in it that I enjoyed. But um, as as everyone has probably got in, in your turn on the forum, I'm vegan and I do think a lot about animal rights. And there is a very weird uh scene in in the movie where animal bodies are used that actually just completely broke this this suspension of disbelief for me so you know i wouldn't expect everyone else to to have the same feeling as me on that but it was something that detracted uh, a lot for, for the movie for me and once something like that happens i can't really enjoy the movie but i definitely think the themes are very very important and appropriate to to program
0: yeah, I can definitely see how uh, that affected you that way. I mean, I, I think one thing that's really interesting with *Miracle Round* is that it, it kind of like feels like a bit of like even if you're familiar with Paul Michele, uh, you know, the, the French low-budget director in the '80s who were making all of these really interesting, visually bright uh, but relatively short films in the '70s, and '80s, and, 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 and onwards. And also kind of this sense of uh, charismaki dryness, if you will, like if you added those two directors and asked them to make a horror film and then spruce it up a little bit, then that that might be something akin to what this film <laughs> is, like it's half oversaturated, half kind of this realism, or as I said in my intro, depressor the realism, then you have these neon colors. You have these very kind of uh, classic sets, and then suddenly you can switch to all red. Like almost like this Giallo inspiration as well, which which ties into, you know, Maria's uh, like mood swings, hallucinations, and just the way she just commits rasher and rasher acts. I, I think it's a very dynamic film, in the sense that you just have no idea where it will go. It blends so many genres that it, it always leans into the unexpected. I, I can agree with uh, Tom that a short running time might make it seem a little slight. And just this complete mix of different impressions and styles can also make it seem a little bit mixed up, but it's just so different. And and also on the topic of menopause, like how many films are are dealing with this topic? I mean, there's the brilliant film by Yvonne Reiner from 1990 called Privilege, but I I, at least at the top of my head, I can't think of anything else. And uh, this one just does it in such an utterly insane way and turns it into a... Like, it's just insane semi-comedy, semi-horror. It's just unlike most of what I've seen, but also reminiscent of so much. So, yeah, definitely one of those films will be interesting to hear more uh, opinions on. And this actually brings us to the final film on the main slate. Also the shortest film, and, and possibly the festival's oddest entry as it is, a remix film. It's called Timekeepers of Eternity, released in 2021 by Iris Maragos, a Greek director, but with all of the actual footage taken from the 1995 miniseries The Langoliers, the American miniseries to be precise, uh, adapted by a, from a Stephen King novel. And what uh, Maragos does is he strips down three hours to approximately one hour he changes it to black and white and then just adds these animated effects that kind of makes it feel like what they are watching the film strip itself is like paper and he rips in it and he makes collages it fits into this you know for anyone who's seen where you have these kind of beings that eat time and just removes uh, physical things just cuts it up it feels like the whole film is being cut up. And even with these kind of more experimental touches, it still feels like a clear narrative. And it's a really tense viewing. And uh, the big question we had when we were programming this film is, is that enough to make it an original work? Uh, Like just stripping away two hours and adding some effects? But it's a great film. It's an interesting film. It's something we haven't really encountered before. And uh, how many remix films are there even? I mean, I can think of a couple like, uh, Rubek Roulette remixed Eden After into And Took the Dice <laughs> but it, it's very 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 rare and yeah this was really fascinating oddball viewing and it's a bit of a curio so it's, it's, I'm looking forward to hearing just what you guys have to say and then it's going to be really interesting to see how the jury and the, the audiences react as well This is one of the most fascinating
3: films I've seen in a long time I'm a huge fan of Stephen King Though, as most people are aware, his hit ratio with films that adapt his work is kind of a hit and miss. You get some amazing films and then some not so good films. Now, The Langolias is a, a mini series that I've avoided because I think it's three hours and there's not many people who speak that fondly of it, but I was intrigued to see this. Weird remix of it, uh, the Timekeepers of Eternity. And it's a really bold reworking of the miniseries. It's an inventive animation. And the fact that it con- condenses the three hour miniseries into just over an hour's worth footage with some choice editing really seems to work in its favor. It utilizes an enchanting experimental methods. Of uh, printing each frame on paper and then reshaping the images to create a hypnotic, otherworldly effect, whether ripping and, and tearing them or scrunching up the paper, and it's like nothing I've ever seen. It the story really stands out as a very strong and, and powerful work here, and there are, I believe, some changes that are, are made in terms of the resolution that seem a lot stronger in here than. Perhaps they are in the miniseries, but again, that's coming from someone who who hasn't seen the miniseries. But having seen Timekeepers of Eternity, I don't feel like I would want to visit Langolia's now. I I think that Wayne may have seen both, if I'm not mistaken. So interesting to see his interpretations here and and what he thought of it. But I'm very, very happy that this has made the main slate because it's a really memorable experience and um, a film that's... I'm excited to bring more attention to as well through the
1: festival. Yeah, so like Tom, I'm a massive Stephen King fan. I had virtually watched every, nearly every adaptation of Stephen King. The people in the forum and all that know that Stephen King's The Stand was my favourite movie, even though it's a six-hour miniseries. Up until earlier this year, I finally reassessed everything. But to get to the longer that would have been my third favourite miniseries about my, say, sixth, seventh favourite Stephen King movie. So I was really looking forward to watching this. At the time, I was disappointed with what was presented. I still enjoyed it. Now I've reassessed it, reassessed it, and this was a brilliant undertaking by the director. Basically. From that miniseries, he has taken the one character. The whole hour, is focused on that one particular character um, who is the person that brings the longer leers. I don't want to ruin the miniseries for you. And one of his major traits was tearing paper. So the animation is based around the character. At the time I watched it, it was disappointing because it was a, a favourite. But the reassessment has meant I I've now can actually see the brilliance in what the director has done. You, you can still get most of the story from this. You do not need to watch the miniseries, but oh, I highly recommend that. But absolutely pleased that this made the main slate and that, a lot of people will now get to see the brilliance of a forgotten Stephen King adaption.
0: Yes, it's so interesting to hear uh, your opinion as someone who's actually seen both the miniseries and the film, because I, I haven't seen the miniseries. And uh, one of the things that a lot of people say, say in what the, film, what the miniseries is known for is that the effects are just atrocious. And here, uh, they just get around that by changing uh, like the monsters to like these kind of holes in the paper that's kind of spinning around and coming towards you. Uh, and, and it's just such an inspired effect. I mean essentially what's happened here is that Morocco f- fixes so many of the errors, if you will, that appears to have been in the original and just makes it part of this really strange and unique experience. So that, that's just really inspired to see. Let's see if we get more remix films like this. Obviously, oh, it's been some other remix films. I was, I was thinking while well, this was happening, like you have Woody Allen's What's Up, Tiger and Lily, you have a guy Madness, the green fog, but also a compilation of multiple films. So yeah, this is, this is special in many, many ways and a very, very interesting viewing. And that's it. That's the full main slate. The 10 underrated films from the last three years you should definitely seek out. But of course, as I mentioned in the intro, there are 10 other slates and 40 other films in the program. Those 10 slates are Africa, Animation, Art House, Asia, Documentary, English Language Independence, Europe, Just Before Dawn, which is the cult slate, Latin America, and lgbtq plus and while we don't have the time to speak about uh, these 40 films in detail i would just love to hear which of these slates are, are you guys the most excited about which stand out the most and are there any films you want to give specific shout outs to
2: I'm just going to raise the art house slate very quickly. So I think one of the ideas behind me coming in as a programmer this year is that there would be more people amongst the programmer group that were interested in art house films. So the art house slate would be more of a sort of genuine representation of the kind of preoccupations of viewers like me. And all four films in that are movies that have made it into into my greatest of all time list, and I, I can strongly recommend them all. So we've got From Planet of Humans, Unrui, Crog, um, which is potentially one of the greatest it, it, that has ever been made, in, in my opinion. Um It's a very difficult movie, and it's very long, but I do think it is one of the greatest movies that's ever been made. And then finally the Georgian movie, uh, Dasat Skisi, or uh, Beginning in English, which is a film directed by Dair Gashvili. So an incredibly powerful uh, female director. So Dasatskisi is actually my number 24 movie of all time. So I just thought I'd put in a a very quick plug for that one. And it's quite an unusual movie. It's it's set amongst a Jehovah's Witness community in Georgia. So I hope a few people make make their way to the art house slate and and see that one, because I think that one's an incredible movie. I know, I know we're running on time, so I'm just going to mention one film with the Africa slate, which is uh, Saloom. Saloum is essentially a Western made in Africa, but it, it is so far from being cookie cutter. And it's one of these movies where you can just feel the vibrancy, you know, that everyone involved was really into it, it as a really high energy. And one of the things that is a main criticism for me of contemporary cinema and actually historical cinema is, is the way that, Particularly Hollywood treats the subject of revenge. You know that there have been lots of movies and I, you know, I don't want to call them all out, but there are so many pro-revenge movies. And I don't know if anyone has had any experience of revenge in, in real life, but it's an incredibly stupid thing to do. And I think that Saloon is a movie that is a revenge story that deals with revenge in an appropriate way. It makes it really powerful, and it's why I wanted to call that particular one out.
3: Really happy to see some love for Saloon. It's an excellent film, and I'm hopeful that that will make a big impact on anyone who watches it. I think that um, my favourite slate usually is the Just Before Dawn slate, but this year I'm really happy with the English language independent slate. We've got some great diversity in there. The standout for me would be On the Count of Three, which is a superb black comedy. Exploring the friendship between two suicidal men as they decide to go out with a bang on their last day. And this is a lot of fun and surprisingly poignant with an awesome soundtrack. also got The Beta Test, a Jim Cummings film, very um, dark um, black comedy. And there's Strawberry Mansion, brilliant film. Very visual about um, dreams, so if you're into films about dreams, you've got to look at this one. And then a greater British drama, Ali Arva, which looks at the relationship between two people. It's a really good film. Overall, I think the festival is excellent this year. There's only a few films I haven't seen yet, and I'm looking forward to delving into the rest of them. So I hope that everyone enjoys what we've put together.
1: I'm probably going to take a little bit extra time with these, but I want to just bring out a few slates. I'm not necessarily the movies, but the slates. Um, I'm going to start with Africa. I've been a programmer for the last three years, and one of the slates I'm most proud of is the African slate. Me and Chris in particular, and now Sol the last two years, have been the main proponents about this slate. It didn't exist before I started. And we've brought this out. Again, we have got a great slate, Ashkels, Salem, This Is My Desire and Night of the Kings. Great representation for an area that isn't just not normally seen in in cinephile circles. Like Tom, the Just Before Dawn slate is one of my favourite parts. And the movies that we have, Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon Great independent movie, Two Witches, a great independent American horror. Incredible but true is, unfortunately, is the only one I haven't seen so far. But an ideal host, just a very interesting, it's the only other Australian movie. Of course, I'm going to stick up for those movies. The LGBTQ, I'm a cis male with a wife, with kids. This is not my section, but it's one I've been the most proud of the last few years because I've helped one of our other fellow programmers push to get this slate as good as we could. Joyland, everyone knows that. The Pakistani movie that made headlines this year. The Blue Caftan, Wet Sand, and Wildhood, all great representations of that. Um, And then just to go back to what Matt was saying with his. Art House section, Malm Krog. I just want to highlight that one particular movie. In my three years of being a programmer, that is the most controversial movie between the programmers that I have seen. For the Art House crowd, it is one of the best movies they've seen. For those like me, like fellow programmers, soul I believe, the same for Tom, it's one of the least favourite movies we've seen in this whole process. It is a movie that needs to be seen and it is probably the movie that will make the most discussion in all of the slates we have.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's see. I mean, I don't think some people are scared of going into the art house latest because of that film's presence there as well. But I think if you love arthouse like you're going to love uh, Malmkrog or Manor as it's called in English. And yeah, I think this is the only film in 12 years that Sol has actually turned off after over an hour in; he just couldn't go through it. Meanwhile... I pushed it as one of my favorite films of 2020, when we had our top five of 2020 episodes. So anyone interested in hearing more about it can go back uh, to that episode. At that point, I had it as my number five or my number four. That's since gone up to my number one, and it's actually my number one of the decade now. I think that's the same format. And yeah, this is just one of the greatest films of all time. It's possibly the most artistically daring and you know powerful film of, of the decade. I mean, I would almost compare it to John Dielman, to be honest. It's just absolutely interesting. It kind of has this kind of ghost of old Europe hanging over it. It's just, it's just incredible. A lot of people will hate it, but if you're art house oriented, you'll probably
2: love it. It's also, I would say, a very long book review in in some ways, if that isn't too provocative way of framing of it. So there's (laughs) there's a book, uh, War and Christianity by Vladimir uh, Solovyov, which I've got. I've been doing it for a long time, but I've been writing an article uh, comparing the book and the film, but I think a lot of... The power of the film is in the way that stuff that you can see with your eyes is differing a lot from what's being spoken about by the people at the table. I think that's the the key difference. And that's why it's cinematic because you can see this visual contradiction going on all throughout the movie. Whilst that does seem to be pretty verbatim taking text from, from the book, we're going to have some very sort of angry viewers and some incredibly satisfied viewers.
0: Yes, I mean, it's it's a deeply over-intellectual film in many ways, and uh, yeah, it's just one of those films that will uh, split people. I'll also just fully agree with Wayne on the LGBTQ plus slate. I mean, uh, this is usually not the slate that speaks that much to me, because generally this slate uh, tends to be quite crowded with these independent dramas or these films that are primarily focused on story and this year i love every single film in the lgbtq plus slate uh they're visually spectacular many of them are very visceral and they cover four different continents we have we have asia we have africa we have europe and we have uh, north america it's so nice to see these, these films that just both focus on these uh, important themes. three of them set in incredibly homophobic societies or transphobic societies, but, but all, all have this very strong sense of visuals and cinema, which is what tends to draw me to films. So just very, very happy, uh, to see that. Uh, yeah, the art house slate is one of our best ever. I mean, Unrest is uh, my favorite film of 2022 as well. So yeah, I just, I think we did, did such an incredible job. It's so great, great to have you in, Matthew, as well, that we can really push a strong and true art house slate. I was also very happy with uh, the European slate, which had a couple of my other favorite movies like Rimini uh, and Sick of Myself, uh, which I know is already building a bit of a fan base. Uh, we also have Erwig and uh, *Mandibles* in that slate. And yeah, I think all of our slates are interesting. I think we, we more or less hit the ending point there, so I can just sum up the rest of the films really quickly. So in animation, we have Accidental r- Luxuriance of the trans- Transl- Translucious Voltaire rebus, which is actually an ultimate for remix film. And we have uh, the Murakami adaptation, Blind Willow Sleeping Woman. Really interesting, kind of really fits his writing style. We have Dozens of North, which is not one of these stripped bare animated films. And then we have the more traditional, The Summit of the Gods, Asia which has been mentioned we have this kind of action sci-fi film a writer's odyssey then we have one of my favorites brother's keeper another film shot from children's perspective in a boarding school in the asian part of turkey then we have this just another serial killer uh, black and white uh, chinese film limbo which i know a l- have a lot of fans uh, followed by uh, the lebanese uh, memory box Uh, It's very powerful in many ways and also uh, quite uh, cinematically inventive.
1: We didn't talk about the documentary slate, but Aurora Sunrise is probably the third movie that, out of this whole thing that that was great. The idea of a genocide that I wasn't even aware of about a, a silent movie actress that she survived Armenian genocide. This is a movie that should be seen by most cinephiles the three other documentaries, one of your normal hosts, Sol, as far as I remember, these are three of his.
0: Three minutes lengthening is a really interesting one where there's this three minutes of vacation footage taken of a Polish village just before the Holocaust. And uh, then it's it you kind of just track down what happened to the people shown within it. And it kind of explores the history of this town. Uh, it's very, very fascinating. Then you have Mr. Organ, which is a bit of a, almost a thriller in a way, with this kind of really shady, masquerading, all imposing figure uh, named Organ, who, uh, who a journalist is trying to get closer to. And, and Made a Look will definitely speak to the people who are generally drawn to documentaries. And uh, the final one we haven't talked about is The Latin Slate, which has a lot of these... Actually, I would say all of these are relatively restrained films. We have the... Thriller, a sore, very minimalist. We have Mama, 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 again, a bit minimalist. We have Sundown with uh, Tim Roth in a very strong lead set, uh, set in Mexico. And uh, then we have Utama about essentially the clashes between tradition, between generations, and this aging town in the middle of nowhere still deals with, uh, still farm in a very traditional way. I think uh, our entire festival has a very strong lineup. I think there's something for everyone no matter your taste or your interest if you want to participate in any of the discussions about these films you can go to icmforum.com. we have threads set up for uh, the individual slates you can just dive right into these films if you have seen any of these films before you can just jump into the discussion right away as well we'd love to have you and uh, yeah with that thank you so much for listening and join us again soon You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast
1: of ICMForum.com.